You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Hello, my name is Kim, and I'm going to invite you to grab your Bibles right now, or your Bible apps, or however you read the word. And I would like to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 3. While you're doing that, um, just letting you know we are continuing our series in Acts today with Tim um, sharing the message with us. So out of respect for God's word, I invite you to now stand. I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. It's also on this card for those of you that picked that up. Part of it's on there. One day, Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly, sorry, (laughs) the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them to the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of God. You are free to be seated. Uh, so uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Tim Challen. I was an intern here uh, many years ago, uh, and now I'm, uh, for the past three and a half-ish years, I've been serving as a pastor at a small church in Manitoba. It's going really well, uh, but, you know, I'm I'm overjoyed to be back here at Town Center. This, this church will always have, like, just such a special place in my heart, and so I, I was thrilled uh, when when I, I contacted Brad a couple of months ago and you know said like hey I'm gonna be in town I'm in town for a wedding it was last night it went really well uh, like would would you be okay with me preaching uh, the next morning uh, at the Sunday service and he's like well actually I'm gonna be in Mexico so that's perfect so <laughs> uh, so it worked really well uh, f- funnily enough the last time I preached in in this church Brad was also in Mexico so we've got this we've got this thing going on I, I can't explain it but it, it seems to work for both of us so um, but anyway but so I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to be here and, and I'm, I'm really glad to be able to to preach a sermon in this series on the book of Acts Now, what I love most about the book of Acts is how things just seem to work out even though there, there is no guarantee that things would work out. Like, like there was no way to know for sure that, that these believers would, would find the courage and the composure necessary to lead an entire movement once Jesus was no longer physically with them. And yet, they did. And even more surprisingly, people responded to it by, by the thousands. 
like in a society that was largely indifferent to the message of Jesus and, and sometimes even hostile to it, the Christian church grew at an astonishing rate. Like, people joined this movement even though doing so was often quite costly because they grasped what it truly was and they wanted to be a part of it. And so, in, in this period where, where Christianity seems to be in decline in Western society, where, where indifference and hostility seem to be growing, and, and thus where the cost of becoming part of the movement is increasing, it is understandable that, that Christians would want to study the book of Acts closely. Like, like you know, surely if, if we just follow their example, then, then things will work out for us the way they worked out for them, right? Like, like if we just do what those believers did back then, th- then our churches will obviously grow as well. And in a general sense, I think that's true. But the danger is that that we will just pick two or three things that characterize the church in the book of Acts, uh, probably two or three things that we wanted more of anyway, and conclude that those would make all the difference. If if we just did those two or three things or, or did them more, then things would work out for us. But I think that if the church is too selective about what lessons it learns from its history, the results will be very disappointing. Now, one particular lesson from the book of Acts, which which I think is valid, but which I also think can easily be misapplied, is that the church should get people's attention by resorting to the spectacular. As in, people won't consider your message unless you impress them, so you should go out of your way to impress them. Now, I think this is true, and and I think it is consistent with what the book of Acts teaches us, but if we aren't aren't careful, following this advice can lead us into some very unfaithful practices. So we, we have to understand how we can resort to the spectacular in a faithful way, in a way that shows people what effect Jesus is having in the real world here and now. So chapter 3 of the book of Acts has two parts. The first part, which we, which we just heard a, a short while ago, it, it's a bit shorter, uh, it, it, is the account of a miraculous healing. And the second part, which is a little longer, uh, from, from verses 11 to 26, is a speech that Peter delivers in Jerusalem. And I, I assume that, that you will get to hear a sermon on that speech next week. And I'm going to be honest with you. I kind of wish I was preaching that sermon. <laughs> like when Brad told me what passage he wanted me to preach on this week, I was a little disappointed. Like my initial reaction was, oh darn, like why couldn't he have started this series a week earlier? <laughs> then I'd be able to cover Peter's speech, which, which tells us so much about how the leaders of the early church presented the gospel rather than some random act of healing. After all, I'm, I'm a fairly intellectual person, and, and I really enjoy thinking about how arguments are structured. Like, so, so, so that kind of sermon would allow me to play to my strengths more. Like, like a sermon about, about why Peter chose to organize his message about Jesus in the way that he did would naturally appeal to me more than a sermon about how some random guy got healed. 
you know, but, but because of how the weeks lined up, I was stuck talking about the miraculous healing of some, some beggar. And, and like, of course, that's very nice for him. And, you know, for, for the guy who gets healed, that's obviously good news. And, like, okay, that might tell us something about God's power and you know, the need to trust in Jesus. But, like, I didn't think that would be a very interesting sermon. But then I got to wondering, why is this account of the beggar who gets healed even in the story? Like, why does Luke, the author of Acts, choose to emphasize this particular event? After all, in the book of Acts, Peter and the other disciples perform a number of miraculous healings, and most of them don't get recounted with anything near this level of detail. I, I even took a quick look at other miracles that are recounted in the book of Acts, and it seemed like, you know, in general, miracles only get described in detail when the people on the receiving end of the miracle, or, or who are, you know, closely related, you know, closely involved in the miracle, are important to the story. So, for instance, in, in Acts chapter 9, uh, Paul is blinded and then healed, and that prompts him to stop persecuting the church and to start serving Jesus. And, like, this is central to the story, as, as you're going to hear in a few weeks, obviously. And, and then later in, in Acts chapter 16, Paul heals a slave girl who had been possessed by a demon. And, and this makes her owners mad because they had been profiting off of her affliction. So they conspire to drive him out of the city. And like this, this explains what is behind some of the opposition to the, to the church. Like, and that, that's also very important to the story. So like both of those miracles, like in, in both of those stories of miraculous healings, like the, the miracle moves the plot forward. And, and so they are recounted with a high level of detail. But miraculous healings that don't move the plot forward are typically only described in summary form. For example, in Acts chapter 5, 14 to 16, we read, More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Now, leaving aside the theological question of how people can be healed just by having a certain person's shadow pass over them, this shows us that Luke doesn't always use a lot of detail when describing miraculous healings. When the people on the receiving end of a miracle aren't important to the story, he generally offers a summarized account of it. Like, it, it's enough to just say, and all of them were healed. But the lame beggar from Acts chapter 3 isn't important to the story. He doesn't become a leader in the church, and he doesn't become an opponent of the church. Like, we we can assume that, that his gratitude towards the disciples leads him to accept their teaching and, and to become a, a Christian, like to become part of this movement, but, but like that outcome isn't even mentioned. So why isn't he just lumped in with the, and all of them were healed, crowd? Well, I think it is because while the lame beggar is the one who is healed, the more immediate purpose of that miracle is to impress the crowd so that they will pay attention to the sermon that Peter is about to preach. 
like as we read in verses 9 to 10. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the, as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Like the, the crowd is now primed to pay attention to what Peter has to say. Furthermore, the miracle isn't just a way to get the crowd's attention. It illustrates the message which Peter is going to share with them. You see, it is the power of Jesus that enables this man to walk. And Peter is about to explain to the crowd how they can have the power of Jesus in their lives as well. So, so like the two parts of the story complement one another. The healing, <clears throat> pardon me, the healing gets people's attention so that they will actually listen to the speech. And then the speech lays out the theological principles that people need to know about for their lives. And the healing confirms that those theological principles described in the speech are having a real impact in the world. We see this same kind of complementary relationship between teaching and performing miracles in Acts chapter 8 6. As we read, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. So it, it, it's like the more spectacular the miracles are, the more the people will accept that his teaching is reliable and authoritative. If Peter or Philip or any of the other disciples had tried to only focus on healing people or, or only focus on teaching people, they probably wouldn't have had as great an impact as they did. Heck, this, this complementary relationship between teaching and performing miracles can be seen at the start of Jesus' own ministry. As we read in Mark chapter 1, 14 to 15, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And then, you know, after he had called the, the first of his disciples... Jesus began to explain what this kingdom was all about. And, and he performed miracles to demonstrate what this kingdom was all about. As we read in, in Mark chapter 1, 21 to 28, they went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then... A man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure, sp the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News, news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. You see, Jesus starts with a simple proclamation that the kingdom of God has come near. 
And then he starts driving out demons and healing people, not only to prove that he does indeed have the authority that he claims to have, but also to prove that the kingdom really is coming near and and that this is good news, that this is life-changing news. And like, while it's certainly true that Jesus heals people in order to show compassion on those who are suffering, Jesus' acts of healing have a far more significant impact than that. They serve as tangible evidence of the redemptive power of the kingdom of God, which, which affects the whole created order. As biblical scholar Gerhard Lofink explains, we do not really grasp Jesus' cures which include the healing of those then considered possessed, if we understand them solely as miracles performed for individuals out of sympathy for their illness. Jesus' miracles of healing must be seen in connection with his preaching of the kingdom of God. His mighty works were signs of the kingdom's proximity. In other words, Jesus' acts of healing were meant to proclaim the coming of the kingdom just as much as his words were. People were supposed to see how he was performing these miraculous signs and conclude that the kingdom of God really was near and that Israel's salvation really was at hand. So back to the idea of the spectacular. We can see that the disciples, as well as Jesus himself, used miracles to get people to pay attention to their message and to illustrate the real-world impact of their message. They resorted to the spectacular, and the church grew. Thus, the lesson goes, if the modern church also wants to grow, it should emulate the early church and resort to the spectacular as well. Now, in in modern times, that that probably won't mean performing miraculous healings. Uh, Even those churches that believe that such miracles are still possible generally don't make that the central focus of their appeal to outsiders. But what a lot of churches do focus on as as they try to impress outsiders is making themselves seem really cool or, or really slick. Now, the most common ways of achieving that effect involve rousing worship sets, high production value videos and graphics, a dynamic social media presence, and fashionably dressed pastors who who just exude charisma. There are other ways, too, uh, such, such as using emotionally manipulative stories and images, and, uh, or, or even picking fights with people whom your target audience already dislikes. And, you know, I, I could talk about each of those practices and, like, what's, you know, what's kind of questionable about each one of them. And, you know, like, but, but, but really the, the issue isn't what churches do, but what message they are sending. Like, like, it isn't necessarily bad to do any of these things, but the logic of what you're doing has to be consistent with the logic of the gospel or else the spectacle is serving the wrong purpose. If, if we go back to Peter's encounter with the lame beggar, we, we notice that, that Peter really only says two things to him. And, and these two things are key. What he says in verse 4 is, look at us. And what he says in verse 6, or, or at least a, a paraphrase of, of what he says is, all I have to give you is Jesus. 
this sums up the faithful way of resorting to the spectacular in order to advance your ministry goals. Like, like Peter got people to pay attention to him while simultaneously asserting that there was no reason to pay attention to him except for how he could point them to Jesus. The problem comes when churches or leaders within churches essentially act as though just getting people to look at them will inevitably mean that they are being pointed to Jesus. Like, like anything that impresses people so, so they'll want to keep coming back for more is, by definition, a success. But that doesn't work if the underlying message that they're sending is, look at us because we're pretty great people to look at. Like, if, if the spectacle that you're making is impressive for reasons that have nothing to do with the redemptive and transformative power of Jesus Christ, then simply getting people to look at you or, or to even start attending your church doesn't really accomplish anything. As pastor and teacher Jared C. Wilson puts it, at our church... We want our music to be as good as it can be without having, without having people come to our church because of it. I think that's bang on. Like, yes, you want good music, but you don't want to be known for good music. You want to be known for being passionate about Jesus. And it's like, yes, you, you should put on a spectacle where and when it's necessary to, to get people's attention or, or, or to get people excited, but, but the logic of that spectacle had better point to Jesus as the only reason that you have anything impressive to offer them or else you aren't truly being faithful. And frankly, there are a lot of ways to get people's attention that actually undermine the message of the gospel rather than complementing it. And if you win converts through unfaithful means, by, by getting them excited but, but not directing their excitement towards a self-denying dependence upon the power of Jesus Christ, their faith is going to end up being either shallow or non-existent. As C.S. Lewis writes... There is but one good, that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. So if you want to put on a spectacle and the, the underlying message of the spectacle is it is only through the power of Jesus that anything impressive is happening and, and I want you to pay attention to me so that I can point you to him, th then that's great. But if the underlying message of the spectacle is, you should be glad that you're here with us at the cool church, then that's a problem. Then the, the formula is, is backwards. It's there is but one good, and that's being cool. And everything, including God, is good when it's cool. But if it turns away from being cool, you know, you, you can forget about it. And that's a problem. Because remember, not everyone whose life is changed for the better by the power of Jesus ends up being cool. And not every church that has a reputation for being exciting, for, for being a happening place, is actually being faithful. 
I, uh, I remember back when I was a senior high youth leader uh, here at this church, and, and we went to Kelowna to uh, attend a massive youth conference called Rush. Now, there were some good points about that conference, and, and I don't want to, you know, give the impression that it was a total waste of time or anything, but, but I do remember, even at the time, I felt it was giving a fairly twisted message about what a life of faith is all about. I, uh, I remember the opening video montage, like the, to, to open the conference, it, it featured a lot of stunts, like, like skateboard tricks and like people doing snowboard jumps and like cool stuff like that. And like, what, while that was great for, for getting the youth excited, for, for getting their adrenaline up, it didn't convey anything about who Jesus is or, or what it means to know him. And, and I remember that whenever they, they introduced a new speaker onto the stage, like, like whoever was doing the introduction would, would make some kind of a comment about how cool this person was. And it just seemed weird to me. Like it, it, it seemed like the people running the conference were operating on the assumption that, that if only they could convince these teenagers that cool people follow Jesus, then they would want to follow Jesus too. And... Maybe that worked in some cases. Like, maybe some kids really did pay attention to the message of Jesus for the first time that weekend and, and had their lives changed by it in real and lasting ways. You know, after all, the, the Holy Spirit can do incredible things even when we as the church are not at our best. But my fear is that anyone who was introduced to Jesus at that conference developed the implicit understanding that he was to be valued not because he could restore what is broken in them and, and give them new life, but because he was, he was the way to make their lives more immediately satisfying. You know, satisfying in the worldly sense of the term. In other words, the spectacle that was used to get people's attention actually undercut the message of the gospel that was supposedly the whole point of putting on the spectacle in the first place. And anytime a church or a ministry decides to get people's attention by resorting to the spectacular, that is a real risk. In addition to that, the, uh, the strategy of doing something impressive and, and then basking in the adulation from those who are suitably impressed can create a vicious cycle. As in, the leaders of a church might do things to, to try and make their church seem more exciting, you know, more, more happening, and when their plan works, they, they find that they can't stop because their people like it that way. Like, their people don't necessarily want to learn more about Jesus. They just want to be impressed over and over again. So, so even if the leaders recognize that what they're doing isn't actually helping people understand the gospel, like, in a deep way, they'll face resistance if they try to change it because their people have gotten used to how things are. As one anonymous pastor at a large, successful church once re remarked, we tried recently to invite church members for dinner with no agenda other than to get to know one another. Many told us afterward that as pastors, we had wasted their time because we gave them nothing to do but sit with people, talk, eat, and watch children play. <laughs> you see, the, these Christians 
had, had obviously gotten to the point where, where they couldn't even contemplate what God was doing in their lives unless something spectacular was going on. And that is a sign that the strategy that had been used to get their attention initially had failed to get them to understand what kind of an impact Jesus really has on their lives. As we conclude, I, I just want to reiterate that, that there is nothing inherently wrong with a church saying, look at us. And there is nothing inherently wrong with a church trying to, trying to make themselves seem really cool or, or really slick either. Like, like, like you, don't just, you don't just have to present the gospel in a purely intellectual way. Most people will find that boring and will tune it out. Not me. I love a good theology lecture. But most people don't. So, you know, if we want, the, to, if we want to grow the church, we, we are going to have to resort to the spectacular in, you know, in, in certain circumstances. And, like, that can be both faithful and necessary. But the way you say, look at us, had better complement the message of the gospel. If your, if your spectacle undermines the message that, that all I have to give you is Jesus, then that's a problem. A spectacle that is impressive for reasons that have nothing to do with the power of Jesus won't actually point anyone to Jesus. And so it won't grow the church. Not really. E even if people do indeed pay attention, that will, at best, produce a shallow kind of faith. And people who only have shallow faith won't stick with the movement when it becomes costly. But when the spectacular points people to the life-changing power of Jesus and reinforces the message that Jesus is the only one who can restore what is broken, then all those suitably impressed people will want to be a part of the impact that he is having in the world. That is a lesson that we can learn from the book of Acts, which will not disappoint us. Lord God, we thank you that you have come into this world you have come in spectacular ways and you are still working in spectacular ways. Lord, we are thankful that we can be a part of what you are doing, that we can be a part of your church, your, your movement. But Lord, there are so many temptations to try and make the church something that makes sense to the world but, you know, but isn't rooted in what makes sense in your kingdom. So, Lord, teach us, refine us, equip us as only you can so that we can be your church, so that we can be part of your kingdom here and now in all the ways that it is moving and changing lives right now. We thank you for that. We thank you for that, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.